Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet's good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. This is you. Get a few friends to join you. If this isn't you, I'll bet you got a few friends with you in that position. So start a group, a Word Diet group. Help them get into the great Word of God. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Ephesians, my favorite book on Christian theology and practice. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Right now, we're working our way through the end of Ephesians 4, particularly the section from chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, where Paul is laying out a fairly long list of things that constitute the change from the old man to the new man, which he's talked about in verses 22 through 24, which is part of the longer section from 17 to 24, and it points back to his opening topic, which is unity. Remember that the entire second half of Ephesians is connected to our responsibilities in Christ after developing our resources and identity in Christ in the first half. And he starts off the second half with unity. Now he's moving into purity. And finally, he's going to move into loving relationships. So in this discussion of old man, new man conduct, verse 25 opens up with truth and lying. We covered that already. And we started into verses 26 and 27, which is on anger. But I have much more to say about that. So let's read the passage and then dig in a bit more. So Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. This is probably the most useful single passage on anger in the Bible. We've already talked through some of the details, but want to focus on it more. For one thing, it's one of the seven deadly sins, causes a lot of trouble. We talked about lying in verse 25 as a chief sin. Certainly pride is right there, and pride will dance with lying and anger as well. And then for me personally, this is a top three issue for me. And I know it's a big issue for lots of people and often underrated that they don't think they have much trouble with anger, but in fact, it's a little higher up the list than they might acknowledge or recognize. There's a terrific book on this by Garrett Kaiser called The Enigma of Anger, Essays on a Sometimes Deadly Sin. And if you're interested in the topic or struggle with the topic, I can't commend the book any more highly to you. It's a terrific book on this topic. So in this segment, I want to borrow heavily from that book and share some of his motivations for writing the book and some of his findings and discussion. His first motivation is a chief one for me as well, that he said his anger is often out of proportion. And I think we wrestle here with what makes us angry. And it's everything from something grand like social injustice to drivers who are morons or maniacs. You know the old line about that, right? If someone drives slower than you, they're a moron. If they drive faster than you, then you're a maniac. But those things upset us. Or maybe there's a half of a bite left in the carton of ice cream in the freezer and it gets you angry. Matthew Henry asked, do I do well to be so soon angry, so often angry, so long angry? to put myself in such a heat 
and to give others such ill language in my anger. So while Paul opens the door to righteous anger here in verse 26, in your anger do not sin, it's possible then apparently to not sin within our anger. The fact is that we do sin much of the time in our anger, and often our anger on top of that is vastly out of proportion. So anger can be a good thing, thus we're asking the question when and how can we be angry? So a few angles here. One is that anger is neutral and it depends on who's in control. Aristotle says anyone can become angry, but to be angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose and in the right way, this is not easy. And so there are sins of commission and omission here. There's an old bumper sticker that says if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. There's a lot of things that deserve our anger, our wrath, that get God's wrath and anger. So why not ours? And certainly there are sins of commission here as well, and those are usually easier to spot. But we want to be interested in both sins of omission and commission with respect to anger. So a proper theology of anger points to proper context for anger. And here we can look to what the scriptures say about the anger of God in the three persons of the Trinity. We see the anger of God in particular against individuals and their sins. Think of God's anger burning against Moses as he's making excuses in Exodus 4, or 2 Samuel 6-7, Uzziah touching the Ark of the Covenant, Job 42-7, God's angry with Job's friends. And certainly God is angry at Israel in their sin. There are so many references to God being provoked to anger, their disobedience and idolatry, their complaints, their rank immorality, and especially all for people who should know better. Imagine a God who is never angry, who never has wrath, and that's not a great picture either. He lets everything go. There's no justice there. There's no apparent sense of right and wrong, of ethics. But God's anger is often trumped by his mercy and even his grace. Think of Hosea 11 as my favorite example of that, at least. We can imagine a God who never gets angry, but that's ultimately not coherent or satisfying and not consistent with the scriptures. Instead, we get a picture of God who is angry, has wrath, but that wrath is trumped by mercy and grace. We look at the anger of Jesus when others' rights were being violated or God's name or reputation were being trashed, Jesus would get angry. Maybe the most surprising references are to anger and the Holy Spirit. In Judges 14, 19 with Samson, and then 1 Samuel eleven six with Saul, the Spirit comes on them, and they burn with anger as they take action. So one piece of this is not to never be angry, but to be angry at the right times. Kathleen Norris quotes Evagrius when he says, Anger is given to us by God to help us confront true evil. We err when we use it casually against other people to gratify our own desires for power or control. Norris here is getting to those sins of omission and commission. Yes, there are things to be angry at, but we waste it on silly stuff. John Stott says there's a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. And Stott observes that it's important to note that Paul discusses this in light of unity, God's new society, quote, and in a paragraph concerned with harmonious relationships. He does so because true peace is not identical with appeasement. Just being nice to each other is not the sum total of what Christian unity looks like, and it certainly does not tell us all we need to know about the ministry of Jesus. If you think mostly that Jesus was a nice guy, just read Matthew 23. 
there's much more to Jesus. There's much more to the Christian life. There's much more to Christian unity than some kind of pale getting along with each other uh, like we're just super nice people. There's more to it than that. In this, we see anger's correlation with passion. And what are the alternatives? Well, we could have apathy, and that's not good. Think of Revelation 3, the church at Laodicea, the lukewarm church that Jesus would just as soon spit out of his mouth. Or maybe we have passion, but for the wrong things, things that are selfish or trivial. Anger is also complicated because it's often a replacement for other emotions and covers for them, things like depression and fear. And anger is the more comfortable way to express those things many times. It can be used in an offensive or defensive way. And thus, it's often a cop-out, a way to escape the true emotion, what's really happening. And this takes me to Kaiser's third motivation. He says, my anger has not carried me far enough toward changing what legitimately enrages me. In fact, the anger often saps the conviction. So anger can be a catalyst, but not much more. Something else has to pick up the ball and run with it. Anger can be a fuel of sorts. It can be the trigger to get us to act, but something else has to step into that compassion, pity, and so on to get us to act in a way that is ultimately helpful. So given that anger is an emotion on the edge of anger, the causes of improper anger imply a flip side of how to avoid anger, either as an improper emotion or as an improper response to a proper emotion. James 1.19 is helpful here. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. So how are we too quick to anger? For me, a big one is improper expectations. I have a sense of what things ought to be right now, or I have a sense of what they're going to be in the future, and when those are violated, then it upsets me. And many times my expectations are the thing that are out of whack, and therefore the anger that follows is not legitimate. In parenting, there's a key issue with a lack of control. We want our kids to behave a certain way, but there's that pesky thing called free will, and it angers us because we don't control the situation. The anger is a cover for fear or frustration or other things. Sometimes it's a matter of poor communication. We live in our own heads. We assume others do too. We think they can read our minds, and of course they can't usually very well, and so it frustrates us, leads us to anger. Larry Crabb talks about demandingness as a root of anger. He says we have legitimate desires, and sometimes we uh, walk away from those by denying that they exist, but other times we move into demanding it. And at the end of the day, anger here is caused by an inflated ego, thinking that we're all that, that we're too important, that we're more important than other people. And so humility is the right answer to this sort of problem. So what's the root cause to the anger? Anger often connects to other stressors and problems, legitimate problems in everyday life, maybe grief, or frustration, pressures at work, and our response is to kick the dog. That's an old phrase, but the idea that the dog did nothing wrong, I come home, the dog's laying on the porch, I've had a rough day, and I kick the dog. C.S. Lewis talks about this with the rats in the cellar, that if we sneak up on the rats, so to speak, and turn on the lights and see a bunch of rats scurrying around, we're likely to blame the lights, but the lights really just allowed us to see in that quick moment that we have a problem in the basement. 
And a lot of times our anger is that. And we dismiss the concern by just saying that the circumstances caused it. But the reality is the anger is always there. The circumstances have merely done us the favor of revealing the character flaw. So anger is an emotion. It's on the edge of action and it's a choice. There's a Psych 101 thought experiment about getting oneself angry. If you were to focus for 15 seconds on things that irritate you, frustrate you, make you angry, you can make yourself angry. And a lot of times we'll use that phrase, you made me angry. No, you have a choice here. You make yourself angry. You may not be able to control what tempted you to make you mad, but you can own your responsibility and settle your part of it internally. The irony is, take care of your own business. You're complaining that someone else has made you angry, but yet you're not controlling your own expression, your own response to it. Two other applications follow. Again, we're back to the role of the mind. A lot of this is happening inside our head. And continuing that thought, this alludes to a role for specific spiritual disciplines with respect to anger. Commit to apologize, maybe count to 10 or 20 if you need to before you're going to respond to someone. The mind and spiritual disciplines are key when it comes to dealing with anger properly. And the second application here is that it underlines the importance of authentic relationships. It's not, again, just a matter of pulling the weeds and staying out of trouble. If we have good, authentic relationships, uh, planting flowers, if you will, it's preventative. When we're close to people, we're generally more careful with them, and there's a context in which our anger, our response is understood, and we've got capital to bank on, that we've acted like a jerk, but we've got you know years of relationship built into this, and it helps us to overcome these small problems. Again, this takes us back to the sort of unity that Paul has opened up with in chapter 4. All right, let's take a break here. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentuckiana's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in the middle of a long discussion on anger, which is stemming from Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. There, Paul writes, in your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. We covered two segments ago, the last part of that verse and the counsel to deal with anger appropriately and relatively soon. We've spent the bulk of our time talking about that amazing first phrase, in your anger, do not sin, which opens the door for the possibility of righteous anger. And while we've also talked about how that's not done very well or done very often, we still want to talk through the possibilities there. And we also want to talk about why anger is such a vexing issue for us and one that's underrated. For me personally, it's a top three among the seven deadly sins. And so this, this is a topic that I find especially fascinating, not just in general, but for me personally. A lot of this discussion comes from a book called The Enigma of Anger, Essays on a Sometimes Deadly Sin by Garrett Kaiser. And the book is terrific. I don't know a resource, can't imagine a resource, frankly, that is anywhere near as good as this on the theology of anger, how anger manifests itself in various aspects of our life, including church, family, marriage, parenting, and the like. So if you're interested in the topic, a very readable book, 
It's 25 short essays, actually, so it can be read almost as a devotional, a devotional on anger. That's sort of interesting and ironic, perhaps. But a really terrific book uh, by Garrett Kaiser, The Enigma of Anger. So, you know, given our discussion in the past segments, the next point to make is that whatever we think and have said about anger to this point, uh, this is not a justification for widespread anger or for you know, anger uh, in its many poor manifestations. And the fact is we've got to be very, very careful when it comes to anger. And the scriptures are very clear on this. Proverbs 17, 14, starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam. So drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. Many times we don't even want to go there. Don't even tickle that itch uh, at all. Proverbs 29, 11, fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end, Proverbs twenty nine twenty two, an angry person stirs up conflict, and a hot tempered person commits many sins. And then one more, Ecclesiastes seven nine, do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. So while there may be a place for anger on occasion, while we're not angry enough at some things, the far greater sins here are that we get angry for the wrong reasons in the wrong way and cause immense amounts of damage, as any sin does. So we're looking here at a distinction between destructive and constructive anger. And it's interesting that there's only one letter difference between anger and danger, even though we pronounce them quite differently. And anger and danger have a lot in common. If we get angry at the wrong reasons, uh, it's going to cause, you know, tons of trouble. And we also know that dealing with angry people is a dangerous thing. So there's lots of ways in which anger and danger are connected and correlated with each other. Kaiser's second motivation for the book is that my anger has more often distressed those I love and who love me than it has afflicted those at whom I am angry. And I think that's a key thing. What is anger going to do as we practice it? in practice? What's it going to do? What's it really going to do? And is it going to cause tons of damage, even if we're trying to use it for good stuff, especially given our sinfulness, given our pride? From Jesus in Matthew 5, he puts murder and anger on the same, you know, in the same spectrum. They're roughly equivalent in spiritual terms. We have to be very careful because anger really means I'd like to kill you, right? At its base level, I'd like to do damage to you but maybe I can't because of social conventions, legal penalties, and the like. And Paul here in this passage gives three qualifiers, warnings, and negatives. Don't, don't sin with respect to anger. Resolve it soon. And don't let it give any footholds on your life. I think Paul means the foothold comment to be with respect to the devil. That's the immediate context. That when we let anger settle in, you lead to bitterness, envy, resentment, things that are much deeper Another way of thinking about this is that anger against someone is like giving them free rent in your head. It's akin to me being on fire or even setting myself on fire, hoping the smoke bothers the one at whom I'm angry. How many times have we been angry at someone and the damage is all to us or people we love and really has nothing to offer, no impact on the person at whom we're angry? The story is told of two monks who carry a woman across a river and then they continue their journey and continue to walk and one monk is complaining to the other one about elements of that river crossing, the mud, the soreness, and so on. 
And the other monk wisely replies, I quit carrying her five miles ago. You're still carrying her. And that's the way it often is, right? We should have put the burden down. We should have left it behind. And still we carry the anger around with us as if it's doing us any good. Leave it behind. So it, as possible, we should deal with anger as quickly as possible. Resolve the anger as best you can. And it may not resolve immediately, but do the best you can. Clear the table of your wrongs and seek to forgive as much as you can. Now, forgiveness is a process. In the book of Hosea, one of my favorite underrated books, forgiveness is often the hardest thing we can do. It's so easy to be angry, but ultimately it's not in our best interest. One piece of this is the role of understanding and empathy as much as possible. And instead, we like the cousin of anger, which is self-righteousness. But then it's difficult to forgive and to extend grace. And so we pray for insight. We pray for our enemies as Jesus has commanded us to do. I want to close this out by talking about anger in the context of two different key aspects of life. The first is marriage. I heard a great sermon on this one time. I'm sorry I don't remember who gave it, but they had three points to make, all of which began with the same letter, of course. And the points were to flee, fight, and forgive as we deal with anger in marriage. And the point about fleeing was flee fast. It's Paul's point here which is as quickly as you can deal with anger, flee from it. Most of the time, it's not worth our time and energy. As far as fighting, we should fight fair. And how often in marriage, we don't fight fair, right? We kick the dog, we cause trouble, uh, we bring up past troubles, etc. And then forgive, and we should be the first to forgive. The sermon included a story about a couple who were basically making competing lists of complaints against each other, and one partner finally stopped it by simply writing, I love you. And so that's the right answer. Uh, forgiveness, be the first to forgive, be fast to flee. And when you are fighting, fight as fairly as you can. Chip Ingram said, marriage is not a debate to be won, but a dance to be enjoyed. And if you're angry, you're not enjoying the dance. Let's also talk about anger with respect to parenting and training our children. The first is to think about the role of anger in our own family as we grew up, that we receive something from our parents and we may be giving it to our children. A lot of times we map our past into our current situation, and we need to be careful about that, to reflect on the role of anger in how we were raised. Second, we want to avoid aggravating a child's anger. Ephesians 6, 4 says, do not exasperate your children. And our anger can cause all kinds of trouble, but we can also do things where we're tempting a child to become angry, and we should not do that. Third, we should not use anger simply to get what we want. And in the context of parenting, that would be largely out of intimidation. When a really large person gets angry at you, it's terribly intimidating. You know, imagine you're a child half of your size, and that would be akin to someone twice your size getting angry at you. It just feels different when it's coming from a person who is immensely larger than you are. So seven things to teach them. I think this comes from Kaiser's book, but I'm not sure. First, to distinguish between anger as an emotion and as an action. That's especially for younger children. And we need to emphasize the action piece of it and then to express it and deal with it constructively. And that can include creativity, cleverness, and humor. Second, to teach them that it's not about moral vacillation. There is right and wrong, but sometimes there is moral ambiguity, and more than one response may be legitimate. 
when we're dealing with younger kids, we're going to have to be more concrete in talking through this. But as kids get older, we can talk to them about the complications and ambiguities that go into our responses and why people choose to do what they do. Third, we need to teach them that anger, like other storms, often follows a warning and always comes with a price. Again, I think that's a Kaiser quote. And we can allude here to Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel. There's a storm coming, there's a warning, and there's always a price. Fourth, to think long-term versus merely in the moment. And this is true of anything, but maybe especially with anger. Take a breath, walk around the block, and then come back to it. Fifth, teach empathy. Try not to take things personally. A lot of times we're taking things personally, and it's not even about us. And so to teach kids that, it's not about you. They're not attacking you. They're you know, just unhappy people. Sixth, commit to apologize. We need to do this as parents, and we need to teach them to do the same. And then finally, share our experiences with anger and our humanity with our kids with respect to anger and, frankly, everything else. Lord, help us to reflect on our anger and its impact on those around us, including those we love. And we pray that you would prick our souls and convict us where needed, that we would talk to friends and get good counsel on how to deal with anger. In the name of Jesus, amen. Time to take a break. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. We're getting towards the end of Ephesians 4. We're in the section running from verses 25 to 32, where Paul is providing a number of illustrations of his discussion of the old man and the new man in verses 22 through 24 of chapter 4. And all of this is in the second half of Ephesians, starting in chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul has called his readers to live a life, walk a walk, worthy of the calling they have received. Part of that is putting off the old man, putting on the new man. And Paul has moved into specific behaviors. Verse 25 was on telling the truth rather than lying. Verses 26 and 27 was how to handle anger properly. Here's what he says in verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. So the verse starts with the Eighth Commandment, don't steal. I cover the Eighth Commandment in great detail in episode 82 of The Word Diet, so you can check that out. And his mention of the Eighth Commandment here is an extension of his earlier discussion of the commandments. Anger, which was extended to murder, the Sixth Commandment by Jesus, and then before that, lying, which is a cousin of false testimony, the Ninth Commandment. Paul writes about this in other places, for example, 1 Corinthians 6.10, talking about neither the thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor adulterers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So those who are thieves by their nature will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're not comfortable in the goodness of God's kingdom. They have not accepted God's grace. Or 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And of course, thieving would be an example of that. Another reason to avoid thieving is that you're putting yourself on the devil's team. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Or think about Zacchaeus, who comes to faith in Luke 19, verse 8. And what he says to Jesus is, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And so, in essence, if I've stolen from them, I will pay restitution of four times the amount as prescribed in the book of Exodus. 
Broadly, the prohibition against stealing underlines the importance biblically of private ownership and the principle of stewardship. And it turns out that stealing can be defined quite broadly, things like slacking at work or home, redistribution through political markets and government policy and the like. But again, I'll leave that longer, broader discussion for episode 82. As before, Paul is not interested in merely talking about what you shouldn't be doing, but what you should be doing. The old man is leaving some conduct behind. The new man is picking up other. And in particular here, the prescription is to work. This was an important principle for Paul. For example, in Acts 20, verses 34 and 35, he says, You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied mine own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. In that passage, Paul talking about both work and giving to others, as he does in this passage. We also see it in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, and 12. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. Again, the idea of work. There, Paul connects in the idea of respect as well from outsiders, and again, the idea that we wouldn't be dependent on anyone. Of course, in this passage and in Acts, he's talking about beyond that, not just not to be dependent on someone, but to be able to help others who are in need. Now, the Thessalonians were struggling with work because of their eschatology. They believed Jesus was coming back very soon, and so they somewhat reasonably were thinking, well, why would we work if Jesus is coming back? And so Paul repeatedly pounds them on the need to work. We also see this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked day and night, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we did not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. So Paul condemns idleness in that passage, and he provided them a powerful example of what it is to work hard. 1 Timothy 5.13, to the young widows, he says, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house, and not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to, that if we're idle, we usually get ourselves into other sorts of trouble. We see the same thing in the wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes 11.4, whoever watches the wind will not plant, whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. Proverbs 6.9-11, through 11, how long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. A funnier version of this is in Proverbs 22.13. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the public square. And the sluggard, the idler, often has just lame excuses for why they're not working. 
The Proverbs 31 woman works very hard. For example, in verse 27, she watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. So as before, Paul says to replace bad things with good. Don't steal, don't be idle, but work. Work is the first institution laid out by God in Genesis 2. It precedes even marriage as an institution. Adam is first given kingdom work to do. And so it's the case for us. We're built to work. We're built in the image of a creator and working God. And so we create and work as well. Failure to work is not within the design of what God has made us to do. The other positive in this passage is to use our resources to help other people to give. So we have stealing and being idle in contrast to working and giving. And so there's a call to Christian charity here. There's also a role for serving and saving, but it doesn't fit Paul's context here of loving others. Serving and saving are also both important things to do, but they're not exactly what Paul's talking about here, and they're not in line with his focus on unity from earlier in chapter 4. All of this should change our motivation for work as well, that all of this is not just for us, but for others and for God. It's as part of God's kingdom, we're stewards of the resources given us, and so we work and give to love God and to love neighbors. Stealing, by contrast, is completely selfish, and failing to work is falling far short of what God intends for us and wants from us. Two other Proverbs link some of these principles together. Proverbs 18.9, one who is slack in his work is brother to one who destroys. Very provocative here, right? That if we're being idle and slack, that's a cousin or a brother to one who actually destroys things. A failure to do the positive is equivalent to being destructive. Proverbs 21, verses 25 and 26, the craving of a sluggard will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. All day long he craves for more, but the righteous give without sparing. Again, a connection between sluggard and unwillingness to work appetites that are not satisfied, and a failure to give. All of this implies the importance of a disciplined approach to life in this regard, that we work, we earn, we save, and we give. And again, all of this connects to stewardship, stemming from Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, the great commission that Adam is given in the garden. With respect to our time, talent, and treasure, God has graciously given us those for us to steward and it's important that we handle them well. It's interesting in the parable of the talents that the ten talent and five talent men do a great job. It's the one talent person who actually struggles. And by burying the talent in the ground, not using it, not investing it properly, the owner refers to them as evil and lazy. Again, there's a sort of theft here. If you should earn a rate of return and fail to earn that, then in a way you have stolen. And so when we don't steward properly, there is a form of stealing that's going on, not consistent with the new man that Paul has been describing. Finally, we can connect all of this to kingdom work. The same language is used there. Luke 10, 1 and 2, Jesus sends out the 72 two by two to every town. And he says to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And so the need for workers, work, giving ourselves to the kingdom, stewardship of our gifts in everyday life and ministry and so on, is part of the plan, part of what God has given us to do. Hebrews 6, 
11 and 12, we want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. All right, let's take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we covered Ephesians 4.28 on working and giving rather than stealing and being idle. That takes us to one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, Ephesians 4.29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. This is a life verse for me, the first half on watching unwholesome talk, but then especially that second half, the call to the new man in terms of speech, what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. I just love those three phrases in the positive half of Ephesians 4.29. We might consider these death versus life words. Paul talks about this in other places. Colossians 4, 6, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Proverbs 10, 19 through 21, sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver, but the heart of the wicked is of little value. The lips of the righteous nourish many, but fools die for lack of sense. I like that passage because we have to be careful with our words, not to just talk, talk, talk. That's verse 19. But then verse 21, the lips of the righteous nourish many. We have to use our tongue. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. We need to use our tongue in a positive way. That's what Paul's talking about here in Ephesians 4.29. Proverbs 12.18, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 15.4, the soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. So let's dig into the first half of this verse. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Psalm 141.3, set a guard over my mouth, Lord, keep watch over the door of my lips. And so the psalmist seems in particular to be concerned about the bad things that would come out of his mouth. Unwholesome is the Greek term sapros. Elsewhere, it's only in the Gospels And it's always translated bad by the NIV, and it's applied to rotten trees and fruit seven times and rotten fish once. So basically, when your mouth is cranking out bad stuff, it's equivalent to rotten fruit and rotten fish. That said, unwholesome is still an appropriate translation in the context of what we see later in verse 29. It's the idea of making someone less than whole. The good words are meant to make people whole, and unwholesome would be to make them less than whole. Anything we say like that is in the spirit of the death words that Paul is describing here. I like the verbs here as well, do not let come out, as if it's merely speaking that just sort of is popping out of our heart. And Jesus makes the same comparison in Matthew 7 in talking about good and bad trees producing good and bad fruit the fruit is coming out of the tree. The words are coming out of the mouth as an extension of the heart. Don't let those things come out. So the first thing is fix the heart. But second, if the heart is still struggling, you still don't want those words to come out. 
It's a matter of both heart and habit, therefore. So we want to fix the heart, but we want to make sure the habits of the tongue are good as well. Jesus in Matthew 12, verses 33 through 37 says, Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. And so Jesus increases the standard there. It's not even bad words, it's empty words. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. In this sense, the tongue is the filter for the mind's thoughts, what comes out of the heart. Psalm 19:14. may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And here, Paul is emphasizing the action rather than the attitude, what's actually said. But again, you can't separate them out fully. What's in the heart will tend to come out. So it's a matter of both heart and habit. Now, what are some of the categories of unwholesome talk we might draw application to? The first is probably cussing uh, or coarse joking. He'll return to that in Ephesians 5. That's an obvious application. He's just talked about false testimony and lying in chapter 4, verse 25. Proverbs 25, 18 says, Like a club or a sword or a sharp arrow is one who gives false testimony against a neighbor. Something like gossip. Gossip is a true thing that should not be said, and that's in contrast to slander, which is a falsehood. But both of those should not come out of our mouths. We could talk about criticism and complaining, speaking truth without grace, how we talk about politicians as an example. Do you pray for politicians as you're commanded to do so in the scriptures? If you're complaining about them without praying for them, then you're speaking death words. And if we take this broadest definition of unwholesome talk, things that fail to make people whole, we can even extend this to talking too much rather than listening. It's been said we've been given two ears and one mouth, and they should be used in that proportion. If we're talking too much, not listening enough, the fact is that our tongue is not wholesome. It is not making people whole. Chuck Swindoll said, I know we don't carry weapons in church, but that's not necessary when the muscle behind our teeth is ready to launch. And so we need to stand in the face of death words at work and at home. How do we deal with gossip, criticism, complaining? It takes courage, wisdom, and tact. We model it appropriately. We deal with the external influences which tend to tempt us in certain ways. We replace it with better words, back to old man, new man. Again, we deal with heart and habit. We change the topic. We say something positive about someone. And again, the use of discernment and tact spirit-led helps us understand how to handle this in ourselves and in others. We've got to be careful with the tongue, ours and others around us. All right, so let's go to the second half of the verse, because that's where the real challenge is. Well, I shouldn't say that. For some people, that first half of the verse is terrifically challenging. If you've spent a lifetime of having habits of unwholesome talk flying out of your mouth, that's going to be a, a handful or a mouthful, if you will, But for those that have been in the faith longer, those that don't struggle with a lot of baggage in that regard, 
And really what God wants for us is not just to stop the negative, but again, to do the positive. And that's where things get really interesting and challenging, where the bar is lifted to such a high level. Only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. The good words, not just eliminating the bad words. The word for helpful is literally good, so not neutral words or death words, but good words that build up. When I think of good and neutral words, the topic that comes to mind for me is the matter of small talk, you know, talking about the weather, so to speak, or how are you doing, and we're not meaning to get into something you know, terribly meaningful or great in terms of building others up. But there is a role for small talk in setting the table to move us down the path towards edifying, helpful, good words. If all you do is small talk, if small talk is too common, then it becomes what Paul describes in 1 Timothy 1, 6 and 7, meaningless talk. So it can be useful and edifying to talk about small things. But what are we aiming for as we engage in small talk? Is it to build a deeper relationship where we can eventually have big talk instead of just small talk? How are our conversations? Are they merely small talk, mostly small talk? Let's aim for something bigger and let small talk be a part of that goal, again, to fulfill Ephesians 4.29. In particular, Paul wants us to build others up. So he's defining good talk in this specific way. The Greek term here is oikodome, and oiko is always used for building a house, a home, a family. We saw it actually three times in chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. We also saw it in chapter 4, verses 12 and 16, when he talked about unity. It's a building up that's like building a building. And buildings have foundations and walls. They also have windows and roofs. And we can draw some metaphors there. We build relationships on foundations. They have walls. They have windows, so to speak and they have a roof or a covering. Buildings also have both beauty and structure. They're useful and homey. They have a look and a form. And the foundation is the truth, the skills, the relationship, the need for us to make investments in our relationships that build up relationships that allow us to build others up through speech. The phrase according to their needs gets even more specific. How do we know what they need? It assumes a relationship. I can't speak to your needs unless I know you. And the more I know you, the better I can speak to those needs. Also speaks to the role of the Holy Spirit in helping us, informing us, empowering us to give us wisdom. It implies the use of empathy, sympathy, and compassion. Life words not delivered or received properly may become death words. And this implies responsibility on part of both the talker and the recipient to be according to their needs. The next phrase is that it may benefit, literally give grace to those who listen. The word is often translated heard, and in Jewish thought, and it apparently extends into the Greek, hearing implies doing something with it. Often we use the word hear to mean I heard you, but that doesn't mean I'm going to do anything with it. In Hebrew and in Greek, the hearing means I'm going to do something with it. Those who listen will benefit, will receive grace if they can do something with it and choose to do something with it. The opposite of that is pearls before swine, Matthew 7, 6. The pearl is laid out there, but the swine can't benefit from it. 
And this is a wonderfully freeing phrase. It defines success, as Paul does often, not in how people receive it and respond to it, but in his faithfulness to the calling that he has been granted. Our responsibility is to lay out words that are effective, that build others up according to their needs, but it still requires them to listen and put it into action. Another term that's helpful here is the difference between encouragement and exhortation. Encouragement is often a watered-down word. Exhortation implies a bit of challenge to it. We see that in verse 25 with a reference to truth. So truth and love, being full of grace and truth, implies at times the need to challenge people. What builds them up is not just being kind to them, nice, saying, hey, that's a nice shirt you're wearing, but challenging them to be something else, exhorting them to something greater. Again, what does God want for them and from them? Norman Vincent Peale said the problem is that we would rather be ruined by praise than saved by criticism. Proverbs 28, 23, whoever rebukes a person will in the end gain favor rather than one who has a flattering tongue. And in this, we also see the importance of humor as a way to help deliver truth with grace, not flippancy. Flippancy tends to move us towards small talk, trivial talk, never letting anything go deep. But humor can be really effective in this regard. If an orthodontist can help fix one's mouth and teeth, then our great physician can help us with speech and maybe as an occupational therapist who can correct our speech and help our tongue. Lord, may it be so. Lord, help us to live up to Ephesians 4.29, not just to drop the unhealthy talk, but to build others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.